you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Myths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. Revolution, overthrowing the government, free sex, free dope, you know, free TV. Do you believe in those things? I not only believe in it, do it, that's the title, do it. You ever turned on? What do you mean by that? Ever gotten high? Stoned? No. No? I'm but, sorry. But you drink? Certainly, but I don't get Alcohol stoned Alcohol is very bad for you. No. Dope y- is good. Who says that? Well, everybody who takes it, you know. Do doctors say it's good? Doctors, what do they know? But people who take it, young kids who take it know it. Everyone on TV, I watch out there, ought to tell to smoke dope. I'll tell you something. I had a woman who took dope. She was only 20 <laughs> years old, lovely and beautiful. She just came out of jail. In, in order to get the dope, she became a prostitute so she'd have money for it. Mm-hmm. You think that's good? No, well, that's because the society uh, puts people in jail for smoking dope. There's over 300,000 people who smoke dope who are now in jail. People who drink alcohol put people who smoke dope in jail. Timothy Leary. Our brother is now in jail in California. 20 years for smoking dope, smoking flowers. And every young kid out there watching TV knows what, what, what smoking flowers by, is nice. Minute. What do you mean by flowers? Marijuana is a flower. It grows. Oh, and you it's a natural that. thing. All right, well, let's and go. then you smoke it, and it's really nice. Alcohol is terrible. Alcohol is, knocks up your brain very bad. You know, it dis- Have you ever... Alcohol destroys Why? you. Why? Have you been Alcohol is destroyed. I, every time... No, I don't drink. I mean, well, I then try, how do you know? Well, I've tried it, and it's just crazy, and I see what happens. Al- alcohol has destroyed the American middle class, made it the most destructive and racist class in the history Why do you of the want world. a revolution? I want a revolution that can be free, so that we can free, free Bob Seal. Free from racism, free from pigs. we got to eliminate all the pigs. <laughs> By pigs, you're referring to human beings or animals? I'm referring to policemen. Well, I, I got a no, shock like for that. you. You don't like that. I'm very friendly with police. Oh, you are, are you? Well, I got a shock for you. I'm very friendly with the Black Panther Party. Out. Stop the interview. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Lone Gummit Podcast. Rob Clark here with you. That was not my guest. That was not my guest. Um... I just wanted to play that because I found it very entertaining. And from the time period where we're going to be talking about today, um, 
<laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That was comical. Alright. <clears throat> so, this month, at the Dark Mist Collective, we have a new podcast we're going to be spotlighting. It's called Blurry Photos. The hosts, Dave and Dave, take on a variety of subjects on a weekly basis. I'm talking about the strange, the unusual, the paranormal, and in a very, very funny way. Okay, they don't take themselves too seriously. So if you're looking for a new show and you want to check one out, head over to darkmist.org and find blurry photos. Now I'll put up a link on TLG Podcast with their photo there. All you gotta do is click it, it'll take you right to the website where you can listen to their show. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, you know, they've got shows on you know, the Salem Witch Trials, uh, the Winchester Mystery House, uh, you know, just various other odd things, strange things, paranormal things. And they do it all with, with a very funny slant. They don't take themselves too seriously. And it's highly entertaining. So that is blurry photos. And of course, that applies, you know, to the JFK case. Very, very good. Because we're always talking about blurry photos on this show. Um, so yeah, no ridiculousness, no ridiculousness of the week this week. Uh, got a very serious guest and a very serious topic. And I couldn't be happier uh, to have this guest on. His name is Robert Taylor. He's a former spokesman, national spokesman for the Minutemen organization. You may have heard of them. Um, and he's got some very enlightening um, observations with the Kennedy assassination. Uh, he has some various uh, interesting uh, interactions with some of the players you may have heard about involved in the Kennedy assassination. So stay tuned for that. And we're going to be going into the interview here in a second. I want to play you a little bit of my guest, Robert Taylor's band. His band is called Changes. And this, I'm going to play a song at the intro and at the exit of the interview. Um, this is by far my favorite it's damn catchy, and I hope you enjoy it. It's called Waiting for the Fall. There's talk of revolution, impending civil war. The lines are being drawn, the writing's on the wall. Ancient spirits slumber, the calm before the storm. Hero wakes and stretches, reaches for his sword. Waiting for the fall, my friend, just waiting for the fall. Waiting for the fall, my friend, I am waiting for the fall. The first shots have been fired, the battle has begun. The blood red tide is rising, swelling like a flood. 
An age of soot and ashes Hero takes his stand Let's have this out with fake my brothers Liberate our land Good stuff, and I'll put the videos up on TLGpodcast.com uh, for some of his songs from his band Changes. Without further ado, people, let's get right into it. I'm going to urge everybody out there, make sure you listen to the whole interview. It's long. It's two hours. It's packed full of interesting information. So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right, folks. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is episode 119. And today I have a very special guest for you. His name is Robert N. Taylor. And he is a former spokesman for the Minutemen back in the 60s, early 70s. Uh, He's a musician, an artist, a poet, an author. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Oh, very good. Happy to be here. Good, good. Um, If you would, just for the folks out there, I know... Some people that listen to this show are going to be familiar with uh, Adam Go Rightly's book, Caught in the Crossfire, about Carrie mm-hmm. Thornley. And you actually wrote an afterword for, for Adam's book um, called Talking About My Generation, which is, of course, you know, some fascinating stuff happened back in the 60s. Well, uh, I was asked to write that by someone for a small publication originally. Okay. And, uh, the, the subject was Kerry Thornley, but I didn't want to just recap his life because Adam had already done that in a book, The uh, Trickster and the Conspiracy. Right. So I took it from another angle, you know, kind of showing the parallels of Thornley and myself as being members of the same generation and having gone through a lot of the same permutations of thought, uh, various influences, you know, that we encountered where that kind of took us, and there was a, a great deal of parallel uh, development between his his own life and my own in that regard. I mean, it's part of a generational thing more than anything else, I guess. Sort of the spirit of the time. Yeah, because he was more uh, of a he was more of a free thinker, free spirit, um, really yeah, ahead well, of his time. I was, yeah, I was too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and, evident, because, uh, uh... Yeah, the closest I ever got to Kerry, I never met him, <clears throat> is I wrote for his uh, publication briefly, uh, The Innovator. Right. Which was one of the seminal early uh, libertarian publications. Uh, the libertarian uh, outlook on life was probably uh, closest to my own views of things. It continues to be, in essence... And uh, I would probably, I, I think last uh, election I voted for Mr. Johnson. And uh, I was looking forward to uh, John McCaffrey maybe getting the uh, nomination for it this year, but he didn't. The computer was. Right. But I've, I've for long been in that basic mindset. You know, I've always been in favor of liberty, anti-totalitarian and so forth. And, uh, you know, I've always felt that I was a defender and advocate of minority rights, the very smallest minority, the minority of one, the individual. 
Right. So that was basically my premise and my motivational factor in my association with the Minutemen. Uh, there, there was quite a number of libertarians or people in that basic uh, mode of thinking. And then, of course, there was the segregationists, the, the neo-Nazis, the Klan types. And uh, the Minutemen in general was a, a truly populist organization in so much as it wasn't a, a single uh, ideology or anything. It took in a lot of different people with uh, varying permutations of thoughts. Yeah, kind of like a coalesced within this organization. So, uh, yeah, the uh, the organization itself had no no policy relative to racial theories or uh, anything of that sort. You know, uh, whatever members, individual members, or cliques within it that did, that was beyond and outside of the uh, stated purposes and goals of of the organization per se. Right. And uh, in all the years I knew Robert DePew, who was the founder of the largest, uh, sort of the official Minutemen group, uh, I never recalled anything he ever had to say against anybody uh, based upon race or anything like that. Later on, he got kind of in that mode after he got out of prison, after the Minutemen were laid to, to rest. And I think basically he was trying to win approval from uh, these other people on the right, uh, he was hoping to sort of hitch his wagon to their uh, activities and such, because everything in the Minutemen had pretty much fallen apart. In fact, the time in which I was spokesman uh, for the organization, uh, everything had lain dormant for over several years. And then, principally, the people that were still in touch were still supporting us, still coming to visit and everything, almost all of them were government agents. And we had very few actual members uh, who would even get in touch anymore, send dues in. Uh, we were basically living hand-to-mouth for about a year and a half, uh, living on peanut butter sandwiches, essentially. Yeah. And uh, there was no money coming in whatsoever. And we, it was all going out, basically, whatever we could scrounged together, was paying for the paper and the publications and the ink and all the rest of it. But uh, it was pretty dormant. And the uh, COINTELPRO operation of the federal government really kicked in. They were hitting us from about three or four different directions at once. Mm. And uh, there came a time when I had information came into me uh, from somebody who I trusted who said that uh, we were going to be raided and uh, the feds were going to come in and they were going to find an excuse. If we didn't have guns on us to fight them, they were going to plant them on us or plant drugs or something like that yeah. and just wipe us out, pretty much like the Black Panther raid that occurred up in Chicago with Fred Hampton, right. where they came in and uh, killed these people sleeping in their beds. And uh, it was like a joint uh, force and that was a part of COINTELPRO, too. It wasn't all directed at uh, the right, you know, and also uh, a lot of the left-wing groups were getting hit by it, too. So anyway, uh, and that's when we pretty much wrapped up the show and uh, dispersed from that point. They were supposed to come on a Sunday morning at dawn and hit us, 
and we got the hell out of there a day or two beforehand. Right. You so, got to know when to run. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, we were holding the fort, but it wasn't doing us any good. We weren't uh, weren't progressing. Uh, we were putting out the, the publication on Target right. and all the rest <clears throat> and getting very little feedback from the general membership anymore. I think people were a little afraid to get near us at that point, uh, figuring that the feds were all over us, which was the case, in fact. And uh, I remember putting out a letter. One of the last things I did was to write a letter out to all the coordinators and leaders of local groups suggesting that they form militia groups in their own area and, uh, you know, disperse in that sense and create like hundreds of uh, independent groups that would be hard to monitor and watch by the federal agents. So that's pretty much what happened. Uh, unfortunately, the militia movement, as you see it today, is sort of like on square one of where the Minutemen were in 1960. And we were pretty green to what we were doing, and we, we really didn't uh, really know exactly what we were up to. Uh, we still had these uh, ideas of guerrilla warfare and people in camouflage clothing up in the mountains fighting off uh, tyranny or something. And as time went on, we began to learn and become more and more sophisticated in our methods and approaches and uh, methods of espionage, subversion, and all those things played a much greater role in the later years of the organization. And we broke the thing up into cell networks, which were more difficult to infiltrate or to monitor. And uh, so we developed a great deal of sophistication out of... Uh, more or less learning from our mistakes is what it amounted to. And then along came the militia movement, the current one, and it's like they went back to stage one, to square one, to start all over, to learn all the same lessons the hard way, yeah. as you saw in the Bundy thing out there, which right. seemed like a completely pointless uh, set of circumstances and actions. Yeah. All it did was get one guy killed and the rest of them incarcerated and uh, turn the public against them, no less, too. You know, they didn't get a lot of sympathy for what they did because it was kind of kind of clumsy and uh, pointless, basically. Yeah. So anyway, uh, getting back to the uh, Kennedy assassination, which is your principal focal point there, yeah. uh, I was about 15 years old when, when Kennedy was assassinated. So I was I was in the organization already. I had joined at about 14 years old, around 1960, and uh, but I was not privy to what was going on at the national headquarters or anything like that. And I can't even remember really discussing the Kennedy assassination with Robert DePue until the Garrison thing arose about 1967. So it was quite a few years later, you know, that we even discussed. Uh, that whole thing, and he never told me anything relative to the organization being involved in it in any way, and uh, he was just simply mainly interested in Garrison's investigation and how that was progressing, because obviously some of the people that Garrison had under his scrutiny, uh, mainly uh, Clay Shaw and David Ferry, were in fact members of the organization. No, they were. And I, I met them 
I didn't know who they were when I met them at a meeting, the very first meeting I went to of the Minutemen, a national meeting, which was held in Norborn, Missouri, a small uh, town about 65 miles east of Kansas City. And uh, it was on a Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, it was a meeting of various people from around the country all converged there, maybe about 20, 22 people or so, I'd guess. And among them were David Ferry and Clay Shaw. And I remember David Ferry because he was wearing like a pilot's jacket with a uh, Civil Air Patrol patch on it, a kind of beat-up brown leather jacket. And he was very brisk and very uh, aggressive. And uh, they only stayed for one day. Uh, He said they had to get back uh, home or something. And he had flown in to some airport nearby. And Clay Shaw was uh, a lot younger back then. And uh, he was something of a dandy, really natally dressed. And uh, he was, uh, he just stood around for the time I saw him with a, uh, like a trench coat or raincoat over his arm. And I, I had no uh, conversation with either of them. And then it was years later when the uh, photos appeared, when Garrison was uh, investigating, that I recognized the two of them. And then, of course, it was Jerry Brooks, who was down in New Orleans, too, connected with Bannister and apparently them. And uh, I knew Jerry pretty well. I got to know him pretty well, spent some time with him. And uh, so, so there were these people that had been in New Orleans that were under Garrison's scrutiny, and DePue was very much interested in what was going on there. He gave me Garrison's uh, private telephone number and suggested I give him a call and swap uh, stories with him and try to see what I could get out of him, so to speak, as to where he was going with the uh, investigation and all. Now, we were talking uh, uh, before we came on the air about the General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy book by uh, Jeffrey Caulfield, which I just finished reading. And I never... DePew never told me that he had actually met with General Walker, which was covered in this book. Uh, I knew who General Walker was, of course. And, uh, in fact, I I might have been among the people that picketed uh, the Springfield uh, mental uh, facility down there when he was taken in after his insurrection down at Ole Miss. And... Uh, the organization kept pickets up there, you know, protesting his incarceration there and all. Right. And that was Minutemen huh. doing that, uh, using some front name. And uh, so I, I didn't know that Walker was directly involved uh, in the Minutemen in any way. Uh, but uh, Mr. Caulfield's book uh, pretty much claims that, as well as H.L. Hunt and... Uh, one of the problem, I mean, the the overall thesis that he has there uh, is pretty convincing to me, except for the fact that I think he paints the picture with too too broad a brush. In yeah. other words, he draws in everybody, so many people into this conspiracy uh, that had it been that many people, 
knowledgeable about what was going on, you wonder how in the world, given human nature, that they could ever keep this thing quiet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he had everybody on the right, practically, as a part of this conspiracy, from Billy James Hargis to uh, H.L. Uh, Hunt to uh, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, all of these uh, personalities and everything. If all these people were involved in it, my God, how could you keep a lid on it? Oh, I mean, yeah. anybody knows that the more people that are involved in something, the more chance there is of, you know, things getting up. Uh, getting out to the public or whatever, somebody's spilling the beans, somebody talking too much or bragging. Well, a couple of so, them did. I mean, look at, look at Miltier, you know? Yeah, Miltier was one, uh, and the Somerset fellow who reported on him. Right. Uh, there again, then you, then you're up against the fact that the FBI had this information and they didn't even provide it to the Warren Commission. Yeah. So you have to ask, was this just uh, bad uh, work on their behalf, or uh, did Jagger Hoover, being the director, did he tell them not to? Was he protecting some of these people, like Bannister, who was a former uh, high echelon FBI uh, man? Right. And then the guy, uh, Regis uh, Kennedy, who was the head of the New Orleans FBI, seemed to almost be protecting Bannister from what this book claims. And then you have to ask yourself why. Well, Hoover probably didn't like Kennedy, uh, his politics or anything else. Uh, Hoover was pretty reactionary and to the right, personally, but he was also a bureaucrat. And first and foremost, he was a bureaucrat uh, guarding his own patrimony there yep. as director, you know, his more-than-lifetime uh, directorship there. So maybe he felt threatened by Kennedy, you know, Kennedy being in office. And uh, I'm sure he didn't like Kennedy, was not a, a rooter for him or anything. Whether he would have personally been involved in something like that, I kind of doubt. But uh, covering up, perhaps so. Yeah, or a blind eye, you know. Yeah, and then I have to ask another question. And then, then you get the Warren Commission. Okay, uh, Earl Warren was like the... Uh, one of the people that the uh, political right in this country was after all the time. There was billboard signs calling for his impeachment from the John Birch Society and all these other groups. Yeah. Now, I can't picture Earl Warren covering up in favor of all these right-wingers. These people are like his enemies. I mean, you would have figured he would have been only too happy to foist all the blame upon them. I mean, these were not his friends, ostensibly. True. These were people that were after him. And uh, you wouldn't think that there would be this whitewash and this cover-up and the, the single gunman theory and all that, uh, which he more or less, uh, after, what, 12 volumes, uh, came to that conclusion, uh, all those volumes of testimony. Uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, why would this man be covering up or uh, obscuring the, the facts if it was ostensibly all these people like Walker and H.L. Hunt and all these people that were his sworn enemies, uh, would he be uh, covering for these people? I find that hard to believe. Uh, unless he was just given a dictate from on high that he was just supposed to dispense with this whole thing and uh, sweep it under the carpet, so to speak. 
Yeah, well, I think he was given the mandate, you know, with it, that Lee Oswald was the lone assassin and yeah. you know, the, everything you find, which, of course, came from the FBI, was their investigative yeah. arm. Um, that's all they had to work with, so, uh-huh. you know. Well, DePew had once told me, back oh, maybe about 1964 or so, about having been contacted by some people in Texas and being invited to come down and see what they were doing. They were like a Minuteman group, but he didn't know about them, had never heard of them before. And he went down to this uh, ranch, and they had facilities, fire, uh, uh, gun ranges, and all these other things. And he said everything was just real professional and almost military-like, how they conducted it all. And he he found it hard to believe that these people were civilians running this place. He thought it was like CIA or uh, something along those lines. And then uh, they gave him a room to stay overnight, and he was going to continue on with his tour of their training facilities. And some sometime during the night, he decided to get something from his car, a book or something that he had forgotten, and he went to uh, leave his room and discovered that he had been locked in the room. Hmm. Well, this... Uh, put a tremor of fear of that he was a prisoner. Yeah. So he, he gathered his things together and he climbed out the window onto a small roof and then down a drain pipe and got in his car and drove away as fast as he could. And uh, he, he was perplexed. He didn't know who these people were. So if this was the H.L. Hunt group or something, uh, and then years later, I was living in New Mexico uh, I think I described it in an article that I sent to you, and uh, met this guy just by chance, coincidence it seemed, uh, walking by my house, stopped to talk, and we got engaged in conversation, and he said, let me go get a couple six-packs, and we'll continue on, and we said, fine, and he went off, came back with the six-packs, and we began to drink some beer with him, and uh I had long hair. The guy that I was with had long hair. He was a Vietnam veteran, had gotten back a year or two prior. And we both looked like a couple, you know, typical hippies. Yeah. And uh, so this guy sort of figured that's what we were. Then he got to talking with us, and he was kind of surprised at uh, our political stance and uh, how we felt about communists and so forth. And he stayed talking with me until dawn. And then said he he had to get back to his hotel room. He was working in that town as a blaster for a mining company. And as we, uh, I said, I'll walk you back. He had been drinking quite a bit. So I want to make sure he got back. It was about three blocks away from where I was living. And we got about a block and a half away, and he stopped. And he said, uh, I was wondering if you'd be interested in, uh, in an organization, joining an organization. I said, well, what's that? And he said, Minutemen. Hmm. I said, oh. I said, you're with the Minutemen? He said, yeah. And he told me a little bit about it, that uh, he had been with this group and so forth. And So I said, well, take a walk back to the house. And I brought him back to the house, and I pulled out a bunch of uh, newspaper clippings with my picture, my photo in it. And uh, these were things relating to my Minutemen activities. And he was... Uh, Pretty, uh, pretty astounded by this, and 
said, oh, my God, maybe I've said more than I should have said, and so forth and so on, like he was in trouble, and I, I assured him there was no problem at play. And uh, he left and went back, and then a couple of days later, I went over to the motel room where he was living, and he had already checked out. And the fellow's name was Carrie Bouchamp, was the huh. name which he gave me. And that's the last I ever saw of Carrie. But he pretty much described to me facilities down in Texas that sounded very much like uh, what uh, DePew had related to me years before. This was maybe about 1973 uh, when he uh, told me about this. So it kind of corroborated what DePew had told me. And uh, oftentimes, government uh, sets up parallel organizations. And... Uh, as a as a ruse, uh, they also did it out in California with a group called the Secret Army Organization, which cropped up about 1969-70, which was founded by a former Minuteman leader who was a fireman out there, and they had him uh, under the pressure of arresting him for weapons or something like that. So he caved in and went along with their plans, and they created this. Uh, surrogate sort of Minuteman group, and I mean, they went out and they terrorized people. I think one person was even killed as a result. And another person that was involved in a lot of that stuff was this fellow Jerry Patrick Hemming. Oh, yeah. A soldier of fortune, which I was kind of surprised there was but scant mention of him in Caulfield's book. Right. And uh, if you recall in the podcast you did with... Uh, Keith Gilbert, he mentioned uh, Hemming and uh, Oswald coming out to to visit him to purchase some guns or something. Right. And Hemming seemed to be everywhere and into everything. Uh, he was uh, reported to have been in Dallas the day of the assassination. So, too, was Frank Sturgis, the anti-Castro uh, uh, soldier of fortune and probably and CIA. CIA, At least a contract employee. I don't know if he was a bona fide uh, CIA uh, employee or just on contract. Right. He was supposedly in Dallas. Uh, Keith uh, Gilbert claimed that he was there on the scene. And then, of course, uh, Milter, the picture of him in the, uh, in the crowd of people there on the street. Right. I mean, it's almost like they sold tickets. <laughs> You know, like curbside tickets to the event. All these people converging down there, if in fact they had. Uh, you know, just uh, kind of astounding, really. But I, I, despite certain reservations on Caulfield's book and certain things that he didn't uh, get into more, like Hemming and some and Sturgis and some of that, it was like he didn't want to touch the stuff uh, that might put it toward the CIA or something, as Garrison had been trying to do. So he kind of left all of that out, you know, in service to his main thesis, I think. Yeah, and I like think... I say, he kind of painted it with a broad brush. I mean, I just really question how many people could uh, know that this was going to happen or be somehow uh, involved in the whole thing and yet be able to uh, get away with it. I mean, that was kind of an epic event. Yeah, well, I think he painted, uh, you know, he showed very well at least 
the the connections between all these guys and how they were oh, yeah, able yeah. to know sure each other. Yeah, I'm sure there's connections, but a lot of it seemed almost like guilt by association. Right. You know, I mean, it, just because Billy James Hargis supported General Walker doesn't mean General Walker would have invited him in on the on the secrets or whatever. Right, right. Uh, Billy James Hargis in particular would be a person. Uh, there was something pretty squishy about him. He did not uh, uh, strike me as being a, a very courageous individual. Uh, Depew hated him. Uh, <clears throat> Depew had visited with him once and uh, was sitting at a dinner table with Hargis. And Hargis and all these blue-haired ladies that he was fleecing of their <laughs> money. And uh, Depew said something where he used the term damn in what he was saying. And Hargis stood up from his chair at the head of the table, and he said, Mr. Depew, we do not use that kind of language at this table. And uh, Depew got up and took out a pocket, a handful of change out of his pocket. He threw it on the plate and walked out. And that was the end of uh, anything they had to do with one another. Huh. Later on, he, oh, he said, uh, he said, well, I don't... Uh, spend my time fleecing uh, old widows out of their fortunes. And then he threw the money in the plate, like in payment for the food, and walked out the door and left. Wow. And after that, he hated Hargis. And he even talked of uh, kidnapping him and uh, setting up a dungeon in a basement and torturing <laughs> him for weeks or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he actually meant it, but he probably did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Robert Depew was a uh, extremely intelligent individual. Uh, he was probably on the the cusp of beyond being a genius. Uh, much of what I saw of what he did was uh, di diabolically genius. Uh, he was uh, a, a, a very creative uh, person in in so many ways. Uh, but but essentially, as I later read in psychology and everything, he was almost a textbook psychopath. He was definitely a man that had no compulsion about doing anything. And uh, he was someone who would never uh, have a tinge of guilt or feel any anything for victims or whatever. You know, he seemed almost... Uh, removed from it and and like so many leaders he was a man who who uh lived life as though the whole world uh revolved around him and him alone right and uh but he was a, a bona fide in my estimation he was a bona fide uh, psychopath you know i mean textbook from what i've read of psychopaths you know he had all the traits and then some right and uh so I mean I wouldn't wouldn't doubt you know that he would be involved in an assassination in some way, uh, whether he was or not I have no no personal knowledge of, but I don't think he would be been adverse. I don't know if he was in a position at the time that that occurred uh, to actually have the the machinery for pulling something like that off. Right. You know he hadn't really geared up at that point, but. Uh, he he was uh, a remarkable person in many ways. 
but with uh, some real bad uh, character traits nonetheless. Uh, it almost seemed to me at times that he wanted to break every every legal and moral uh, law or rule there was. Uh, he, he tried everything. He tried counterfeiting. Uh, he, he masterminded all these bank robberies. Uh, my God, it's like no stone was unturned. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, nothing was too far out for him. And uh, he was he was a man of ability. He was a hell of a salesman. Uh, he had done that for his company, which was a biochemical company, which produced animal husbandry, uh, nutriments and drugs and such. And he built that business up uh, to a million-dollar-a-year business. You know, it was a family-run business. And uh, by 35 years old, he, he was a millionaire in assets. So he was kind of a whiz kid in that regard, and uh, it was a corporation, and he ran it into the ground, essentially, taking money from the corporation to fund his other activities, which is, of course, illegal. Right. And, uh, but uh, he, uh, he he was a, a go-getter, you know, an aggressive person. Uh, he had a really sinister side to him. Even though he had a good smile and a nice handshake and all the other things that psychopaths usually have, yeah. unfortunately, and that's why they beguile people. But uh, so anyway, you know, I, I never heard anything from him relative to the Kennedy assassination outside of his avid interest in Garrison's uh, investigation. And I, it was interesting to learn that Garrison had first started out uh Looking at the right wing, yeah, for the uh, answers to the the questions he posed, and then made an about face and started pointing his finger at the CIA. Uh, that Clay Shaw had once been uh, a uh, CIA asset over in Italy. Uh, there's a lot of people like that, students that are taken under their wing to attend some national youth conference or something one time, and that's the end of their uh, tenure with the intelligence. <coughs> yeah, basically just so debriefing Shaw, it. I don't yeah. think he was like a 100% uh, paid employee of them or anything. Yeah, no, I mean, he was just in a unique position as an international businessman, so to speak. Yeah, you know? exactly, and he's the type of person they might tap for uh, various things, you know, within a given short-range sort of way, you know, and once that had been done, that would be the end of it. But, yeah, I think uh, that was why they ended up infiltrating the Garrison investigation, at least to try to block that, them finding out that aspect of it, because, I mean, I, I don't think the CIA would have wanted any connection whatsoever um, or any any light shined on what they were doing as far as, you know, their, their anti-Castro activities mm -hmm. um, back then. They would have you know, they would have definitely wanted well, to. Well, apparently Hemming was in some way tied in with them because I was down at his camp in the early 60s. And one day, uh, about three or four guys in uniform from the 82nd Airborne, demolition experts, came down and showed us how to use plastic explosives, and they brought a whole bunch of it down there. So this was like official government providing these instructors and this material 
these logistics. So, you know, this wasn't uh, just a bunch of uh, Cuban uh, anti-Castroites or something. There was some government involved in this. Now, whether that was a regular thing with Hemming, if he worked for them consistently for the rest of his days or not, I don't know. But he was a pretty duplicitous character. He even got in on the garrison investigation. Oh, yeah. Offered his, his services there. And then he was in the movie, uh, he was a, uh, consultant on that movie Oliver Stone made. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if it was you who told me he was one of the shooters in the movie. I can't remember if he was a shooter or a spotter, but he was, yeah, he was in, yeah. he's, he's in the movie for a brief period I mean, of time. This, this gets, this gets pretty ironic, yeah. you know, at that point. So basically, you know, I began to look at this and, and all of these, uh, side investigations and books by Judith Varney and Haslam and all the rest of it, you know, all pointed towards, uh, intelligence, uh, being behind all this. But, uh, like, like you said to me once, you didn't think they showed any proof of their uh, suppositions and claims. And, uh, in fact, they didn't. You know. So it may all be a fairy tale, there, you know, what Judith Varney is saying. I don't think she's come up with any evidence, any letters from Oswald no. or anything. Now, as to Oswald's being a member of the Minutemen, as Keith Gilbert uh, claimed, it might well have been that he became a member of the Minutemen by way of Bannister. Right. And may never have had any direct contact with the national organization. Because when I was the head of the organization in uh, the Chicagoland region where I lived back in the early 60s, I had about 70 people in my network, and only about 12 or 15 of those people had ever been in touch and joined the organization you know, through the national headquarters. All the other people were my members, and I did not share their names and identities with the national organization. Right. And the only reason I knew the 12 or 15 people who were individual members is because the names had been sent to me and suggested that I get in touch with them and see if they were any good and if I wanted to involve them in my activities or not. So this was another thing uh, Keith Gilbert uh, was talking about Troy Houghton, who was the founder and head of the California Minutemen. And he disappeared off the uh, face of the earth, so to speak. And a lot of people have thought that he was somewhere out there doing things or whatever. Uh, after the Martin Luther King assassination, uh, there was people, uh, news articles, I have one somewhere, saying maybe he was involved in that because he dropped out of sight just before that occurred and all. Right. But the few had told me that they had executed him. And uh, I believed it. And then later I had corroboration when I was underground with the few in 1968. One of the things he suggested that we do is to go out to California and get the jump on Dennis Maurer and Troy's wife who were running the uh, California Minutemen in his absence and get the jump on them, and get the uh, Minutemen California files of the uh, people that were members, because Troy had never shared this stuff with DePew either, right. any more than I had. So, uh, obviously, if he had to go to that extreme, uh, 
he he was not in touch with Troy. You know, he wasn't a part of some plot to drop out of sight or something, go underground. Right. So I'm pretty sure Troy got, got murdered. And uh, every day, for at least a year, year and a half, his, his wife, Betty, would send a postcard, would arrive every day at Miniman headquarters, and it would simply say on it, where's Troy, question mark. Every day, another card would come. This went on every six days a week. She would send these cards, uh, hoping, I guess, you know, that he was somehow still alive or whatever, but fearing for the worst, hoping for the best and fearing for the worst. And uh, even DePew's wife one day said to me, gee, do you think they did something to Troy? You know, and I said, well, I didn't know at that time, you know, but, uh, you know, I later learned, you know, from DePew about that. So, uh, in 1967, early summer, late spring, early summer, I rolled through the Kansas City area and I stopped and spent a, a couple of days with DePew conferring with him. And there was, we conferred on the Garrison investigation. Uh, was one of the things. The other thing was the uh, thing on Troy Houghton. Uh, he also gave me uh, his grand uh, scenario on how to pull off successful bank robberies. I was kind of astounded by some of the stuff he was telling mm. me. And I, I kind of disbelieved it, you know, at the time. I believed the thing on Troy, and uh, I knew he was interested in Garrison thing. But uh, I didn't quite believe him until 1968 when these things began to happen. And uh, But anyway, uh, and the other thing that he told me of was that uh, the assassination of uh, George Lincoln Rockwell was also a uh, Minuteman operation. And I guess uh, John Patler, the one who shot Rockwell, uh, he was a member of the Minutemen at that time. I knew that for a fact. And uh, after he quit Rockwell's group, he joined the Minutemen. And then the Pew claimed that had he not gotten caught, he was going to go on to shooting Robert Shelton of the United Clans, which was the largest Klan group, and also uh, Robert Welch of the John Birch Society. So basically what the Pew was doing was uh, canceling out all the competition. Right. He was going to take all the other leaders out. And only he would be the... the the voice, you know, st- still standing. And, uh, like I, like I was pointing out, he was pretty cold about this kind of stuff. And, uh, so, you know, I didn't even quite, I wasn't even certain if his story on the Rockwell thing was true. But then everything that he, he was doing at that period sort of shaped up to, uh, proving that it may very well have been true because, uh, he had his own headquarters bombed by a member who told me that he was the one that threw the dynamite there and then claimed they were trying to get him too. And they claimed Rockwell was killed by uh, a conspiracy from uh, Cuba that they had decided the Cubans to wipe out all the extreme right-wing leaders, which seemed kind of unlikely to me that they would even think that the, the leaders on the right were very important. Right, you know, to a, a national concern like Cuba, and uh, he was claiming they that there was a list of people to be executed. Rockwell was one, 
he was another, Robert Welch was another, and uh, Robert Shelton. So, you know, it was pretty much, the, and he was saying this to the press. And then he he was showing the press the blowing out hole in the wall and the cop where he slept. Where luckily, he was not there that night when the bomb was thrown and so forth and so on. Plus, just about the time Rockwell was uh, assassinated, uh, Depew held a uh, training sessions up in the Rockies in Colorado. And the people that came out to that uh, training session were told to bring all of their gear, their rifles, their ammunition, their survival gear, because you may not be going home again. Hmm. The revolution may start. So I think it was sort of like if Patler had spilled the beans on DePew's involvement in it, DePew was quickly going to disappear underground into the Rocky Mountains with this army of people. Yeah, prepared then, for the worst. Yeah, he was he was preparing for it, you know. If if the finger pointed at him, he was going to dodge out, and he'd have a, a a group all together, you know, armed and ready for whatever. And then he had another member go and uh, snitch to the the local police about a a uh, cachet of weapons that were buried up there by them. And all of these weapons were garbage. They were like old English Enfield bolt-action rifles that probably cost 14 or $20 originally. And uh, they were of little use. And th it was all junk. Nothing was very valuable among the stuff that they buried. But it looked good in the pictures, the gas masks, the rifles, and all this other stuff. And this established beyond any doubt where he was when this assassination took place. This would, uh, you know, it was right in the newspaper, you know. Right. He was in Denver. He was nowhere near where, where Rockwell was killed or whatever. So there was a whole bunch of these things. And one of the reasons he disdained and hated Rockwell is Rockwell was critical of uh, the Minutemen of Depew. And he was coming through a year before he came through Kansas City, and he stopped to be interviewed by Harry Jones of the Kansas City Star. And uh, he made a, a bunch of disparaging remarks against the Minutemen and Depew. And then prior to that, there was a student out in California named Newton Armstrong III. And he was a, a member of the Minutemen, and he was also the head of a Young Americans for Freedom Yaf type of group out there at his college. And he and his group were fighting against Rockwell speaking at their college because they saw Rockwell's appearance as being a foot in the door. Once they had him speak there, there'd be an endless stream of communist speakers coming there. Right. So the, this conservative uh, college group wanted to keep him out of there. And then... Newton Armstrong, during this whole controversy, is found dead hanging uh, in his parents' home. And uh, the strange thing is his hands are tied behind his back. Now, it's pretty hard to tie ropes on your own hands behind your back and then get up on a chair and hang yourself. Yeah, just so a little. Like murder, uh, disguised to look like a, a suicide. And if you was a damn that some of Rockwell's people had murdered him. And, uh, cause Rockwell had a group out in that area at the time. Right. So there was this bad blood between Depew and Rockwell. And, uh, 
I could see every reason he would want to take Rockwell out. You know, he didn't like him. He didn't trust him. He thought he was an informer, a troublemaker, a kiss of death to the right. Everywhere that he touched upon, you know, he, he was like a bad penny, you know, coming around. Yeah. So he didn't like him, you know. I'm, I'm working on a book uh, dealing with these very matters I'm speaking about, and they all sort of uh, rest within the uh, time frame of 1966-67. You know, and even that, in that small time span, you know, it'll be a book maybe three, four hundred pages long, just filling in all the details of what I've been uh, just going over briefly here with you. So, uh, I'm, I'm attempting to write a comprehensive kind of history of it all. Uh, it's not so much a, an autobiography. I play a part in it, but it's not so much a bi- autobiography of myself as the events and the things that occurred and what I knew and learned and so forth and my speculations on it all, uh, for historical purposes. And, uh, so I figure to tell the story in to- total will take like about five or six volumes, you know, to adequately deal with so much happened in that 10, 11 year period, you know, that, oh, yeah. uh, it, it, it's a little bit hard to sort out almost. There was so much going on. Uh, 1966, 67, uh, Minutemen groups were burglarizing communist offices all around the country. Uh, that was a whole thing in itself. Uh, oh, there was just so many, so many things going on at one, in one brief period. And then 1968, when the organization went underground, the leadership and everything, that's a whole story in itself. You know, I could write a whole book on just that one year. Yeah. And intend to. So, is there any other questions you might have? Yeah, yeah, uh, I got I got some questions for you for sure. Um, these come from a buddy of mine, Stu Wexler. I believe I believe he's writing a book on on uh, the radical right back in the sixties. And Who's he wanted this? Uh, Stu Wexler. Okay. He's part of uh, JFK Lancer, the the group that puts on these conferences in Dallas every year. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with him. Oh, okay. Um, but he's got some really good questions here he wanted me to ask you. Um, okay. First one, uh, to what extent were certain senior members of the Minutemen, uh, notably people like Mowers, motivated by a desire to start a race war? Oh, that was one of the things. Uh, there was a little bit of that. There was a thing. Uh, the organization printed up anonymous leaflets at one Point. They were small little leaflets called Kill the White Devils, and these were uh, scattered through white uh, uh, areas in cities like New York and Brooklyn and places like that. Uh, I, I thought uh, when King was killed that that might have been the organization, plus the fact that James Earl Ray escaped from a Missouri prison so forth and so on. I don't know if there was any connection there, actually, uh, if Minutemen of any type had anything to do with that. Yeah. Uh, Gil- Mauer Gil- sort of Mauer, yeah. Or, or I should say Keith Gilbert kind of alluded to that, but he was sort of uh, 
alluding to Troy Hawkins somehow being involved in it, and I don't think that's possible. There's a whole website up there on the Zodiac Killer uh, claiming Troy Hawkins may have been the Zodiac Killer. And I I looked through it all, and it's a well-done enough site, a lot of information on Troy and all else. But uh, the killings go on beyond spring of 67 when he would have been dead. So I don't think it could be him unless those further murders were perpetrated by copycat or someone else. Right. So uh, I don't really think, I mean, I th- the site is good, you know, almost convincing, except I had special knowledge uh, that kind of precludes the, the theories being posited there. Right. Uh, you know, it's a valuable site so much as uh, getting some background. There's a lot of news clippings of the period on, on Houghton and the California Minutemen. That was probably the largest Minutemen contingent in the country was California. As you might imagine, right. California is a big state with a, a big population. And there's something uh, a bit eccentric about California, basically. <laughs> you know, almost any any cult could flourish out there or whatever. Yeah, especially so, back in the so, so Mr. Wexler had the question of, did uh, we want to start a race war? Uh, I'm sure it was proposed by some of the people, you know, that that might be a way to stir things up and uh, begin a, a revolution or whatever. Uh, Depew told me uh, on several occasions that his goals were not to take over the country, but to create a state in which there no longer was any law, in other words, sort of a uh, anarchy system, in which he would uh, truly benefit uh, because he had other people in an organization and so forth. I guess he could carve out his own little kingdom somewhere or something amid the, the 48 states. Right. Uh, he, he told me he, his goal was not to uh, assume power over the uh, federal government or anything. It was to destroy it. You know, he wanted to return to almost a frontier sort of justice type of thing. Yeah. Wild, wild but, west. <laughs> yep, which is basically, uh, I guess, generally called free state. Uh, free state uh, system is where you, you do have certain laws. There are certain things beyond the pale. You'll end up with the local vigilantes hanging you from a tree if you step over the line in certain areas. Uh, Iceland, in the saga period of Iceland, had what was called free state. And in the free state, there was only one all thing held per year, which dispensed justice. And anybody that balked at the decision of the uh, Council of the All Thing, uh, they had no prisons for them. So they were simply declared an outlaw, and every free man was free to kill them on sight. You hmm. know, if, if you generally, if you murdered somebody else, uh, it would be determined that you had to support and feed that person's wife and children. Uh, there was no jails, you know, per se. Right. No uh, prisons. So it was more like a tribal society. And, of course, anybody that breaks the basic rules of the tribe, it's antithetical to the survival and the uh, the tribe flourishing, you know. 
uh, everything right down to adultery is bad because it stirs up problems within the community. It makes men kill one another and so forth. Right. So uh, you have these certain rules, and everybody is expected to abide by them and not to step over the line. And if you do, uh, then the uh, Council of Elders or whatever uh, holds a, a, a meeting, of a, a court on it, and just depends on what you're, uh, what you're going to be charged with and what the uh, punishment will be. But it's not prison usually. It's usually making recompense in some way. And then you have the sagas that are based on outlaws, and these are people who balked at the decision uh, and didn't uh, meet the terms that were imposed upon them, and uh, they were hunted down and killed uh, because they were a, a tangent that was dangerous to the community, so to speak. Right. You know, anybody that didn't abide by these simple rules. The Old West was sort of like that, too. So that was sort of free state with one marshal for a whole state or whatever. Yeah. And maybe one court or something, you know. So, yeah, that's what the people wanted it to revert back to. Almost a free state system. Hmm. You know, he he was basically a pirate without a boat. Right. I mean, his actions were like a pirate. He thought like a pirate. Right. He's the man that you wouldn't want to bury the treasure for <laughs> and turn your back on him while you were doing it. Right. You know, because the pirates always had a way of taking somebody else out to help them dig the hole, and then they ended up uh, burying them along with the treasure. Exactly. So there'd be nobody knowing where it was at. Uh, when I was underground with Depew, uh, one day he said, uh, everybody's going to, all empty their pockets and put all their money into this big uh, ammo case. And uh, that's where the, the organizational funds were. There was tens of thousands of dollars in this chest. So most of us only had 20 or $30 in our, our pockets, and we threw, threw it in. One guy had a lot more. Uh, he had just sold uh, two laundromats that he had and gave the money to the organization, and he was underground with his wife and baby, and he put all his money in there. And then Depew said, okay, now everybody's going to take $40 back as pocket money for emergency, which we did. Then he said, I'm going to uh, delegate uh, Robert, myself, to be the uh, treasurer. I think we can all agree we trust him, and everyone assented to that. And uh, he said, and I'm going to make uh, uh, Victor, who was the one that put a big bunch of money in there, as the uh, uh, deputy treasurer to Robert. So we got all the money in there. We locked up the box. And he asked Victor and I to go out and bury the money, which we did in the mountains. This is in the Rockies in New Mexico. So we go out and we bury all the money. And that's that. He and I are the only ones that know where the money is. Then DePew wakes me up about 3 o'clock in the morning, hmm. whispering, and draws me outside the door. He says, let's go dig up the money and rebury it so Victor doesn't know where it's at. <laughs> so, I mean, this was like pirate games. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, so anyway, he, uh, he, he, he was smart, though, but he was cagey and he loved to intrigue and plot, 
and he never stopped plotting and intriguing and looking for uh, angles and things and everything. He was an inveterate uh, plotter and intriguer. And when we were underground, his intriguing got really pretty scary. Uh, he started uh, casting dispersion on one member to the rest of the group and so forth. And his son and I were getting worried he was going to end up having most of these people killed off. Right. And he'd be asking myself and his son to do the shooting. And we sure as hell didn't go down there to start wasting the people that were with us. Right. And uh, his son and I eventually, we took off, we left, and they chased us, and uh, then they tried to kill me, and he just missed it by a hair's breath, and that's a whole story in itself. Ooh. But later we reconciled, and I took over when he went to prison. I had spent like 10, ten years of my life uh, with the organization, so I still thought it was worth trying to save. Right. And whatever uh, problems that existed between he and I were between he and I, and that didn't include the government. So uh, I went in and testified on his behalf at his trial and so forth, you know, even though he had tried to kill me about a year before. And, uh, it's uh, you know, I'll tell it all in my book. You can read about it. Yeah. It gets pretty, pretty murky. All right. Well, I got another question here from Stu about something along the same vein. Here, he asked, um, "There specifically was talk of assassination-style retribution. If Depew was caught, does he think? No. Do you think that some of what transpired in '68 was, in fact, a response to Depew's arrest?" Well, no, I don't. Uh, his basic thing is, if he was killed, there would be this retribution. Okay. He never said arrested or caught or anything like that. I mean, it could have been, but uh, he had a list of about 25 people. I think it included Martin Luther King, uh, what's his name, uh, Walter Ruther. Uh, there was a bunch of them, Fulbright, and a bunch of other people on his list. And he set up this organization called the Defense Survival Force the DSF, and uh, you were required to have uh, so much ammunition, so many weapons, uh, everything in a backpack, in a go bag, ready to go at any minute uh, to go out and do all these things. Uh, we had a pack of uh, lock picking, uh, lock picks, and uh, everything you needed, you know, to, to get into places, to wreak havoc. Uh, and so forth, you know, and I was a member of that group. The group, uh, I think it extended to about 50, 60 people. I don't know the exact numbers dispersed across the country. And, uh, somebody claimed that Troy Houghton had been appointed the head of it, but I remember nothing about anybody being, uh, delegated as the, the head of it or anything. And, uh, Nothing ever came of it, you know, the final analysis. They made up some patches and stuff like that. I have several of them. And, uh, but nothing really ever came of that as far as I know. I was never asked to, to kill anybody or anything like that, you know. But there again, you know, his basic premise was if he was murdered, that was going to happen. 
of course, he wasn't murdered. He lived to a ripe old age. Right. So, you know, he may have had that on the agenda or had a dangling threat there, but I don't think it was ever played upon myself. Okay. Um, let me throw some names at you, okay? Okay. Um, that he gave me here. We already talked about Miltier. Um, Sam Bowers. Okay, he was a Klansman, wasn't he? I believe so. Yeah, and wasn't... Uh, I don't know if he was a member of the Minutemen or not. There were some of them. Uh, what was this one guy's name? The one that killed Medgar Evers. Uh, uh, I even have a book on it. Somewhere here. Uh, oh, boy. So many characters, so many names and personalities. Uh, I'm looking it up, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I got it here. You got uh, it? Yeah, Dela Beckwith. There you go. Yeah, I think he was a member of the organization. Because while he was under indictment for that killing, uh, the organization, DePew, told me they sent him a gift of a three oh eight uh, semi-automatic rifle, or, or a Weatherby, I think it was. That's just a way of saying thanks. Yeah, it says here he was a member of the White Citizens Council. Yeah, down south there. <clears throat> yep. But I think he was also a member of Minutemen. And uh, when he was under indictment for that murder, uh, they sent him, some of the people at headquarters sent him a uh, 300 Weatherby rifle uh, as a gift and a way of saying thank you for what he was doing. So that's what I remember, something like that. But uh, I never met him. You know, there's, there's many people. I, I never met Keith Gilbert. I knew of him. Right. But, you know, I read about him and heard about him from others, but I never met Troy Houghton. Uh, for whatever reason, our our paths just never uh, crossed, you know, even though I knew about these people. You know, their names I think they mainly crazy. stayed on the West Coast, you know, for the most part. Yeah. yeah, I had nothing to do with what was going on out there. I got some of Troy's uh, publications. I still have some of them. He put out a publication called Target, right. uh, which was sort of a play off of On Target. I think he formed his Minutemen group independent of Depew and later encountered Depew and then joined into the larger group. And there was quite a, quite a few other groups uh, that formed almost organically in their own areas. I remember back in the late 50s reading some gun magazines as a kid. And there was these articles on these little bands of people who were Minutemen, and they were going to fight a guerrilla war if America were invaded and such. And none of these groups seemed to be a part of a national organization. Uh, I don't know where the idea formed. It might have come out of the book by Taylor Caldwell, The Devil's Advocate, a novel, which has a group called the Minutemen in it who infiltrated to the government and begin to oppress the people, hoping to drive the people to a revolution. And that book was written, I think, about 1953 or 5, something like that. And that might have been, uh, you know, where the idea initiated. But uh, in time, some of these groups began to coalesce, you know, learn of one another. 
but uh, I think Troy had formed his own group al already on his own out there uh, before uh, Depew uh, knew him. And the same thing with Richard Lockley, who was in uh, Collinsville, Illinois. He was the ex-Minutemen who got arrested for delivering weapons down to the camp at Lake Pontchartrain. Right. Louisiana. Yeah, and he was an early uh, uh, member of the Minutemen. I never met him either. That was another person I never never encountered personally. So there was quite a few people I never actually met in the flesh that I knew of, you know, nonetheless. So what was uh, Bowers, I never met him. I, I really don't know that much about him except what I read in uh, Caulfield's book about him. And I, I had seen his name previously in relation to the Ku Klux Klan or whatever. Yeah. How Is about, there any uh, other names? Yeah, Tommy Terrence. J.P. Stoner? Well, I, I know who those people are. Uh, I don't think they were members of the organization, to my knowledge, and I never met those people personally. Gotcha. Uh, Stoner was uh, with the National States Rights Party. Uh, I never really liked that group of people myself. Uh, they they were the uh, they were like the trailer trash. <laughs> uh, group, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I met Fields one time when he was coming through Chicago, and I uh, visited with him at his hotel room, and I spoke with him briefly, and I wasn't duly impressed with him at all. He was—he had just gotten out of chiropractic school, and was heading down south to leave the organization, and somebody had given him my name, and he called me up and asked me to come down and talk with him and so forth. I think he gave me some of his thunderbolts or whatever. And I was not impressed with it all, you know. It was uh it was purely a hate magazine. I mean, wow, it was like crude. Really crude. It was even more crude than Rockwell's stuff. And his stuff was pretty crude. And uh so I think Stoner was a member of that group primarily. He may have been one of the founders of it or something. So you don't think there was much uh, much interaction between, you know, all these groups? I don't think so. You know, uh, most of the Minutemen I knew uh, weren't members of the Klan, too. There were some people came over from the Klan into the Minutemen at some point, but it was way later, uh, in the later 60s. And... Uh, I, I looked at their applications. These were all people with fifth-grade educations. And, you know, they were not very impressive as a group of people, to my way of thinking. Right. And I, I felt a little uneasy with them. Uh, likewise, with the, the handful of Nazis that gravitated towards us. And, oh, there was other people that were ingrained objectivists and uh, libertarians and uh, the bulk of the people were essentially conservatives, you know, people of the John Birch uh, coloring, so to speak. Right. In fact, quite a few former Birchers and even uh, people were members of the John Birch Society overlapped into the Minutemen as well. And uh, they were of a little higher quality, usually people who were insurance salesmen or ran small businesses or were doctors or lawyers and stuff like that. In my own group in Chicago, 
uh, we ran the gamut of people. Uh, we had some attorneys, we had doctors, uh, truck drivers, uh, carpenters, bricklayers, you know. It ran the gamut, you know, from working class right up through professions. And amazingly, what I find amazing today in thinking back on those times is here I was a teenager when I was organizing this stuff. And I find it hard to believe that all of these adults took me serious. But they did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They listened to me. They sat in rapt attention. You know, but I was very, uh, very, uh, dedicated to what I was doing and very focused on it and everything. And I had a quick wit about me. And I was articulate even as a teenager. And I guess I was convincing. And more than anything, I think my sincerity, uh, showed through. You know, I wasn't a con man. I wasn't taking advantage of anyone or anything like that. So, uh, yet always, always kind of surprised me when I looked back at it and thought, gee, how could this attorney or this, uh, owner of an insurance company or doctor or whatever, how could they take like a 16 year old boy seriously as a leader? But, uh, no one ever seemed to question, you know, it was kind of strange. You know, there's doctors and lawyers praying that would never want to get their hands dirty, you know. Yeah, probably so to speak. not, you know, for the most part. But uh I was uh died in the wool, you know, I was a true believer and uh dedicated to what I was doing and I believed in what I was doing and a lot of what I uh proposed was coming up the pike has already come to be. You know, yeah. when I look out at at the world around me, you know, a lot of the things we were worrying about and so forth have all come to fruition, in some cases, even worse. Yeah, as our, our, our rights are getting eroded, and you know. and Oh, yeah, to no end. Uh, we're getting hemmed in. Now they want to tell you how what you can say and what you can't say, what you, what words you can use. Yeah. Which is sort of a uh, a thing of neuro-linguistic programming in so much as if I can determine the phrases and the words that people can use, what's okay and what is not, I, I can begin to program one's thinking by way of that. Yeah, political if correctness. you're relegated, you know, to <laughs> PC uh, perceptions that, oh, this is a no word, you know, you can't, you can't use the B word, you can't use this word, and so forth, well, pretty soon... Uh, this is like something you expect out of Chairman Mao's China. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe that'll all change in the near future. I'm hoping for it. (laughs) Yeah, when Donald Trump gets elected? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Just maybe. (laughs) I'm I'm not altogether convinced, but maybe. Uh, We shall see. Uh, Politicians are a slippery lot by nature. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They, sure. they always tell you what they think you want to hear, and he's a good businessman. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. That's if he gets in. And if yeah. he doesn't get in, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm not looking forward to Bernie Sanders having a socialist president. Uh, the people, you know, things that appeal to people's uh, greed: free, free university and college. Yeah, but what does that mean? That means the government pays for it. And mm-hmm. if the government pays for it, there's strings attached. Then pretty soon they're 
determining what the curriculum is going to be, what's being taught, what the books will be, and everything else. Not that they don't have a pretty good control over it now, uh, due to the faculty that they have at most uh, universities. Uh, they're second generation. Uh, Marxists got into the educational system early on, back in the late 50s and so forth, and uh, they trained a whole generation of left-leaning Marxists uh, uh, as teachers and professors. So, you know, people go to school and they get indoctrinated. Well, under uh, Sanders' thing, it would be a total thing, probably. You know, they'll dictate. It's like everything that you get from government is not free. There's always strings attached. If they give you money for your roads, take your taxes and turn them around and give them back to your state. Uh, well, then they began to dictate on your roads. Well, you got to have uh, motorcycle helmets are mandatory. Seat belts are mandatory. This is mandatory. That's mandatory. And if you don't uh, do that, well, then you don't get the funds. And they get all the states used to uh, depending upon them for funding of schools, uh, roadways, and all the rest of it. And by way of that, they are able to usurp the little bit of states' rights that are left. Yeah. So, uh, you know, especially with the schools, I think that should be determined at the local level what the curriculum is and the books being used. Uh, and, I mean, I'm not for using schools as indoctrination places for my ideas or anything like that. And I, I certainly am against uh, religion in the schools. Uh, I believe in a very severe distinction between religion and the state. Yeah. Uh, the, the founders of this country came from Europe, where churches ran uh, right alongside uh, kings and queens and ran everything with a heavy hand. So that's why they set that into motion, separating the two. They never wanted to see religion uh, begin to uh, dominate uh, the political and social uh, side of things. Uh, my religion, your religion, whoever's religion is best kept outside of government. Uh, I, I, I've talked to some of these folks, older folks, where I live, and they say, oh, well, the problems all begin when they took prayer out of the schoolroom. <laughs> and I point out to them, and I pointed this out to them like eight, nine years ago. I said, well, look at it this way. Maybe that isn't such a good idea because maybe somewhere up the line, uh, your granddaughter or grandson is going to be asked to bring his prayer rug to school. Yeah. Well, it's almost getting to be up to that point, hey? <laughs> yeah, almost. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of what uh, we were against and so forth, you know, has come to fruition. Yeah, and even worse. some things beyond what I could have imagined. Uh, some of the things that the uh, CIA was involved in is almost unimaginable. That they were the ones, and they're bragging about it now, freedom of information has come out. Uh, the whole feminist movement was created by them. Gloria Steinman, you can go to YouTube and, and hear her. Uh, she was working for the CIA. And they asked the question of her, well, why would the CIA want to promote feminism. And she said, well, the idea was to destabilize the country. Huh. Now, that's amazing that our own intelligence agency, which we would presume uh, was there to defend us from foreign uh, 
interests and foreign intelligence and so forth and so on is spending all their time directing their psychological warfare and everything else upon the American people, uh, that they would uh, be promoting uh, destabilization. And you know about the whole uh, thing with LSD was promoted primarily by them. Oh, yeah. And uh, probably the whole youth culture, the whole Laurel Canyon thing, if you've ever read anything up on that, mm-hmm. where most of these... Uh, uh, rock people and everything, you know, you, you scratch the surface a little bit and you find out Daddy was uh, an admiral in naval yeah. intelligence yeah. or something. Uh, I did a cover uh, version of a song, Casey, by Sean Phillips. I don't know if you know who he was from the 60s. He was a balladeer. And uh, I looked up Sean Phillips one day on uh, Wikipedia and it turns out his uncle was Philip Atlee Phillips, the operational head of the CIA, and his dad worked for the CIA, too. And here he was this arch-hippie with hair down to his hips and uh, strumming a guitar. You know, I mean, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's like they created the youth culture. It's like anywhere where there was a predisposition towards conflict, young against old, there's always an uneasiness of with the young against the older generation. There's always a a certain uneasiness in the genders between man and woman. There's always an uneasiness between black and white. So all of these are are, uh, flashpoints that you can uh, further exploit and give a justification to to magnify these things. And of course it's divide and conquer and it's destabilization. Yeah, you know, and, and a, a distraction too, you know. And a distraction at the same time. Yeah, yeah. People, people are doing drugs. So, I mean, and, I'm amazed. Uh, the CIA has come out and admitted that they were the ones that uh, instituted and began uh, abstract expressionist art. You know, the art of uh, throwing paint at a canvas kind right. of thing. Yeah. And I mean, you would wonder why. Well, their justification was they were going to show Soviet artists that the the artists of the West were so free they could do anything they wanted over here, whereas over in Russia, you had to paint uh, socialist realism. So they, they more or less destroyed representational art in the West by way of uh, spawning uh, this uh, horrible permutation of art. And I mean, I saw it way back. I didn't know they were behind that. I wouldn't have imagined uh, for anything, you know, that that an intelligence agency would be promoting something like that. But I looked upon modern art as a case of the emperor's new clothes. Right. You know, that this was BS and that, uh, you know, people would patronize this stuff and say, oh, yes, this is quite interesting, this painting, and try to figure out a theory on why, because <laughs> they didn't want to lose face and seem like they were yokels, that they didn't understand this abstract art or whatever right so uh yeah i saw that way back when uh never got taken in by that at all and then the other thing was uh, the cia was actually funding the paris review which was one of the defining literary journals in the west i mean they had their finger in everything our culture on the social level you know and probably more things than you you could imagine they're probably behind the gender uh, wars that are going on, uh, the whole thing of uh, 
same-sex marriage, the rise of the homosexual uh, movement in this country. These are all probably things promoted, which are the next logical step to the uh, feminist thing. Everything to uh, destabilize the family, because the family in any country is the foundation. And if you can destroy families, pretty soon you got a lot of atoms careening around in a void. And that's about where we're at today. That's you know, true, they, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to think the working class, just because they're in touch with reality far more than uh, other classes, would be the final stabilizing factor. That they would be the ones who just, com you know, basic common sense. They might not be intellectuals, but you couldn't sell them something that was totally ridiculous. And uh, But the way they got at the uh, uh, working class, basically, is to inculcate drugs among the kids and everything. And that's uh, soul-destroying sort of stuff. So, yeah, we're, we're in a bad situation, you know, as a, as a country, as a culture. And now, now we have this invasion of immigrants from every direction yeah. coming at us, you know. And wow, where this is all going to end up, I don't know. <laughs> Probably something horrible is going to, something wicked this way comes. Yeah, I don't see it ending good. Yeah. Unless people are just so, too zombified to care by that point, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody just uh, pops open another can of beer and watches another sporting spectacle on TV. And ignores what matters, you know. Uh, 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 but there again, you know, the, the whole Kennedy thing, I mean, it's an interesting uh, thing, you know. I mean, it's become almost a cottage industry for writers and researchers. Uh, I don't know if it will ever be pinned down absolutely and exactly how it all happened. You know, you get to the points of Oswald there and then Ruby shooting him and Officer Tippett possibly being a member of this conspiracy and so forth. Wow, you know. How do yeah, you it gets crazy. It? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, you know. I mean, whoever, if this was a conspiracy, they they sure knew what they were doing. Exactly. They had fate and luck with them or something to get away with it like they did. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a, another question basically on that. Um, as far as, you know, looking at an overview of, of, of what happened in Dealey Plaza, does that strike you as something that I guess one man could pull off, or do you do you have a feeling no. that it was no, some kind it, of a special it looks team? Looks like there was some sort of group doing this. Okay. You know, I can't believe Oswald did this on his lonesome. Not at all. Right. For one thing, he was never reputed to be a very good shot to begin with. Secondly, he was operating with a World War. Uh, one $14 rifle. Junk, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible to use a, a, a bold action rifle like that to kill someone. You could do it, certainly. But, I mean, if you were going to choose a gun, that certainly was way down the list. Yeah. You know, uh, there's far better things for it than that. And, and even better rifles for doing the job might cost more, but it wouldn't be so outrageously expensive that in time you couldn't save enough money to buy one. Yeah, I mean, it'd be worth it if you were going to try to pull something like that off. Yeah, but to do it with a $14 rifle, you know, I think that's what they were going for uh, at Klein's Sporting Goods Store. 
I lived only about four blocks away from Klein's. I bought some rifles from them when I was younger. Yeah. And uh, the Kakarnos that they had there were like the cheapest gun they had. Yeah. I think they're going for 12 or $14 a piece. Well, did you know this little fact? <laughs> when Jerry Hemming, uh, he uh, applied for the CIA officially, I guess, that he listed Kleins as a previous employer in Chicago. He did? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder when he had worked there. I don't know. I, I'd have to I'd have to pull up that application again one. and see it. Yeah, but I thought that was a little interesting, interesting tidbit. Well, the rifles that he had down at that training camp in Florida were what were called Johnson automatic rifles, and they were a short run that the Marine Corps used. They were kind of a carbine, a short rifle, and they were full auto. And that's pretty much what he was using training down there. Right. And they would have been illegal because I'm sure he didn't pay the stamp tax on them all. No. Any of them. And I went down there. I was a kid. And I was looking for adventure. You know, want to be a soldier of fortune and all that. I'd, I'd been raised on reading Argosy and Saga and Cavalier and all these red-blooded uh, men's magazines as a boy. You know, I was eaten by piranhas and the Mato Grosso and adventure on adventure, you know. So yeah. I was geared toward that. I had decided as a young boy, as a young teen, I wanted to be an adventurer, <laughs> which is a pretty open-ended prospect there. So I ended up down there. I hitchhiked down to Florida, got in touch with them, ended up out on no-name key with them. And then one day, I'd only been there a couple weeks, and they said, well, we're going over to Marathon Key. We have another training thing set up over there. And the news uh, people are going to to do a, a, a documentary on it. So we went over there, and I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, if this is all secret, you know, one of them, they uh, bring in CBS or whoever it was, I can't recall, in there to film all this stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, that's when I began to worry. And then, then when these members of the 82nd Airborne came down there with munitions and instructions and everything in U.S. Army military uh, uniforms, I began to it began to click that wow, this is like some sort of government operation. And I got out of there. I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't trust the government at all. They were the last people I want to get involved with. Yeah, because they could easily set that group up if something would have went south somewhere along the line. And Yeah. Mm -hmm. just... And anyway, uh, my, my sons were watching a, uh, I think it was a two or three part thing that was on PBS or wherever it was on the CIA. It was like a documentary, the history of the CIA or something. Mm -hmm. And there was like one little brief thing of, that Hemings camp down there in the unknown name key. And my sons were sitting there watching it. And all of a sudden they saw me run across the field with a rifle in my hand and a training <laughs> thing. And they said, wow, there's dad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they taped it and they, they gave me a copy of it. I have it on uh VCR, you know, VHS yeah. uh, tape, but uh, it's probably up on YouTube too. I'd imagine it was just a brief, like, not even 30 seconds, uh, scene, you know, real quick. Yeah, a little file footage. 
So I was down there, you know, and I knew him, and he was a real big guy. He was about 6'6 or so, 6'7. Mm-hmm. Enormous guy, and uh, very physically fit and everything. Uh, he was a former Marine Raider or something like that. And uh, But he pops up here and there with Oswald and Oswald's company. Uh, he was a, a sergeant, uh, not at Asuki, but at uh, in California. Uh, when Oswald, and then he was like a, uh, a guard at an embassy that Oswald came to out in California. And then the stories that, uh, Keith Gilbert said about them coming out to visit him. Uh, another person that was involved with him was Robert K. Brown. Mm-hmm. Was involved with him. I met him once. And, uh, Brown's got a book out now, in fact. Let's see what the name of this is. I Am Soldier of Fortune, Dancing with the Devil. It's a hardcover. And it says very little. There's very in the, very little in there that would be of interest to you. Right. Uh, he doesn't mention hardly anything or his connections with it. I think there's one very brief mention of Hemming in there. I remember Robert K. Brown uh, stopped in Norborn, Missouri at Robert DePew's house once. He doesn't mention that either. And... Uh, what was outstanding about it, he was playing the Soldier of Fortune, and we were having like a formal sit-down dinner, and he had all his silverware laid out to his side, but he disdained that, and he ate everything there, including the mashed potatoes with his bare hands. Good Lord. We, we were a bit kind of, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Soldiers of Fortune don't use cutlery. <laughs> you know, that's how manly sissies use that stuff, you know, knives and forks and spoons. Yeah. So, yeah, we were kind of blown away by that. And uh, that was Robert K. Brown. I don't remember anything outstanding. Oh, one of the things he was talking about is they had plans, him and him and some of those Interpen people, of purchasing a uh, World War II submarine from Argentina, a surplus submarine. And they were going to use this to sink a boat uh, at Guantanamo and uh, on the premise that they could force the U.S. into invading Cuba in the same way as the sinking of the Maine. Right. And yet, none of them seemed at all adverse to the fact that if there was American naval personnel aboard a boat that they sunk, they might be killing some Americans doing this. And that didn't seem to matter to these people, you right. know. Yeah. Casualties of war. Sacrifice or yeah. something. I was kind of astounded by that. You know, I was uh, not uh, sympathetic to that idea at all, you know. But uh, I, I've always really disdained uh, anything that was sort of indiscriminate terrorism, things like that. Right. Or, uh, bombs in the square, the type of stuff the IRA was always doing, where you never know if a mother and a little girl is going to round the corner when the bomb goes off or something like that. Yeah. You know, you got to be some really callous people to do stuff like that. Yeah. We're very desperate. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to conduct warfare and terror and everything, soft targets of real enemies is better than you know, uh, trying to destabilize the society like the thing that the uh, Red red Brigades and the Black 
border over in Italy did back in the uh, 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're conversant with all that. Yeah. The, uh, what was it, the Bologna train bombing? Well, they never pinned it on left or right which one was the one that did it. But from what I gather, the uh, CIA working with NATO was behind both sides. And they were doing that to keep the communists from winning the election over in Italy. And uh, the most remarkable guy that uh, you might want to look into Google uh, online is uh, Richard Stark. Richard okay. Stark's a pretty amazing guy. He was definitely an intelligence agent. For who or what agency has never been pinned down. Uh, this was a guy who, uh, he was the primary supplier of all the LSD in America. He took over the uh, Brotherhood of, uh, what is it, Brotherhood of Eternal Love or Light, the one that Larry was connected with. Right. And he took that over. He walked in, he, he dropped so much of this stuff on them that he became the, the primary broker and leader of it all. And this guy was really shady. He's a man that spoke like nine different languages, including like Palestinian and some rather off-the-wall languages and stuff. Yeah, well, that's a red flag right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he was a chemist, too. There's a book, the book that, that uh, the Puppet Masters deals with him. I don't know if you've ever read that. Uh-uh. The Secret History of LSD by David Black. That's got the most on Stark. And I think Stark was the, the connecting uh, uh, person between the Process Church and the Final Judgment and the Manson family group. Wow. Because he was seen in the uh, uh, company of both of those. You know, people have always been trying to find the connection between Manson and the Process. Right. Yeah, I'm going to be working on an article on the on the process. I've written a number of things on them. I encountered them in the early 70s in Chicago. Got to know some of them and all. And uh, I'm I'm leaning towards the fact that they may have been an intelligence operation. In other words, the parallel organization to Scientology, basically. Right. I was going to say, it kind of came out of Scientology there. Exactly, yeah. The two people that founded the process were both uh, clears, so-called clears in Scientology. Mm -hmm. And uh, they fit the demographic for intelligence people. Uh, Mary Andy Grimson was a high-priced call girl in London, and she was peripherally involved in the uh, Profumo scandal there. Mm -hmm. Where the prostitute Christine Keeler was sleeping with the uh, the head of the Russian embassy as well as a uh, House of Lord, fellow yeah. Perfumo, and it was quite a big scandal over there, a spy scandal. And uh, Mary Andy Grimson was uh, involved in it peripherally, and uh, so that's number one. And number two is the process got in touch with uh, the German Democratic Party which is, in essence, the, the neo-Nazi party in Germany. And this guy, uh, Van Pappenheim, I think was his name, was the founder and head of that group, and he died a few years back, and it was uh, revealed that he was uh, working for English intelligence and that he was only half German. He had an English mother, 
and uh, and and the process for some reason went over and contacted them over there, went to their meetings and stuff, which I thought, well, what does that have to do with what they're into, you know? Yeah. And uh, there's other things, and then the Stark guy, who was obviously some sort of a spook, and some of the other things that they were doing and everything. That group metamorphosized, you know, into what's called Best Friends, which is the uh, animal rescue thing out in Utah in Angel Canyon. It's a multi-million dollar uh, a year thing, and they own this big uh, canyon there, and they take cats and dogs in there. It's the biggest animal rescue thing in the country, in the world, I guess. And I've got all sorts of things I've heard about that from people that have worked there and so forth and so on, strange going-ons. Hmm. But they pretty much camouflaged themselves with that. Right. And that's where Mary Andy Grimson died and passed away. She was living in seclusion there. They had high fences around her estate. And uh, that's a whole story in itself, you know. I've written yeah. a bunch of stuff on that over the years. And, uh, in fact, I pretty much got that subject, uh, vitalized the interest in it. Uh, way back I wrote a, a chapter for the uh, first, uh, Apocalypse Culture put out by Feral House. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that book? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a chapter for that. And that was the first thing written on the process. It was just a reminiscence of having encountered them in Chicago. And my partner and I had played uh, music at one of the coffee houses on half a dozen occasions. And uh, we were never members of the group or anything. But uh, we, we did uh, cross paths with them, and I just sort of recounted it. And that was the beginning of it. Now there's books coming out everywhere on it. And, you know, it became a, another one of those cottage industries. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, was there any other questions that you might have had? Yeah, I got one more question for you, and then we can then we can wrap this up. Um, now, looking at Guy Bannister's operations in New Orleans, mm -hmm. I know Keith Gilbert had said that what Oswald was doing, as far as you know, handing these leaflets out, you know, starting this, you know, well, nebulous, nebulous organization. Up build up his cover as a communist. Yeah, he said he said that that sounded to him like a Minuteman operation, like something yep. that they would do to out communists. Very much so. So yep. you, you agree with that? Yes, I do. And it looked like it to me. You know, in everything I've read about it, both with uh, Caulfield's book, as well as other things I've read before on the subject, that's exactly what it seemed like to me. Now, I don't know if he was doing that when he went to the Soviet Union, or he might have went there sincerely, uh, soured out on America or something, and then once seeing that place, right. uh, decided to uh, flip over to the other side. But, uh, yeah, it looked like that was exactly what he was doing. And we did that. We infiltrated left-wing groups. Uh, we, I remember there was some of our people joined the peace uh, demonstrations up in Minneapolis and they, they wore their dirtiest clothes and looked the shabbiest and uh, carried on and made the most trouble and everything to discredit it. And then uh, 
I don't know if you remember uh, ever hear about Sam Melville, Mad mm. Bomber Sam Melville, no. a left-wing communist uh, a bomber up in New York City. No, I haven't heard of him. This is about 1969, I think. And uh, he went on a bombing spree of skyscrapers and stuff in uh, New York. He was a member of a group called the Revolutionary Contingent, which was a small... Uh, pro-Viet Cong uh, group up there, and we had a Miniman in their group, a fellow named George DeMurley, and uh, it got up to the point where they were going to ask George to go out on bombings with them and stuff, and he certainly didn't want to end up in prison for doing their stuff, because uh, he was a Miniman, uh, and he had burrowed deep into the, the most radical ends of the left wing, uh, he knew all the head of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, V.T. Lee, mm-hmm. uh, all of these people, the head of the Progressive Labor Party. You know, he sat on the, the stoops and talked with these people and uh, partied with them and everything else. So he was a, a, a continuous uh, source of information on these people, Weatherman and other ones. And George got to the point where they were trying to involve him in some real heavy stuff, and he he was abject about getting involved in it, of course. He didn't want to go to jail for doing their bidding. So he, he dry-cleaned. In other words, he shook off any tails through Manhattan, jumped on an airplane, came to Kansas City, and got in touch with us. I was running things at the time, and he came out to talk to me, and he wanted to know what he should do, you know, where where this whole thing had gotten to and what he should do next, and my advice to him was to wait till the 11th hour and to uh, blow the whistle on them to the feds, which he did. Uh, Generally, we would never do that, except he was in danger of being involved in it. And this was his only way out of it, in a sense. And he got arrested with the rest of them, but then about three, four days later, he was let out of jail when they realized that he wasn't one of them. He was the guy that called them. And then they claimed that he had been an uh, undercover agent for them all the time and uh-huh. so forth and so on, which I don't think was the case at all, because he never got anything from us uh, or the, you know, of spying on us or anything. Right. It was all a one-way uh, exchange, basically, from him. Uh, he became this uh, vocal communist. His own, own family, brothers and sisters, disdained him and would have nothing to do with him. Uh, he had an art gallery. It got firebombed, he thought, by another Minuteman group in New York. So he had definitely convinced everybody left and right that he was a Red. And uh, he was at Woodstock. That's where he met this guy, Sam Melville. And he manned the, the booth of the Crazies, which was a spinoff of the uh, Yippies of Abby Hoffman. He was Abby Hoffman's bodyguard at the Chicago 7 trial okay. in Chicago. So George and Murley, and he, he ended up getting like a reward, like $25,000 or whatever was offered for the capture of the bomber, one of the big corporations that got bombed put out this reward. And he got it, and they moved to Dallas, and he was an artist, and he continued on with his art. And I never saw or spoke to him again after that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a good example. I'm, I'm writing a thing on him, too, you know, his whole affair. 
Yeah, well, I mean, even the even the thing that that Oswald and uh, Clay Shaw and I guess David Ferry were kind of uh, implicated in was that they were uh, disrupting the core, the Congress on Racial Equality voting mm-hmm. registration drive out there in Clinton, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and they were seen out there. And, and I guess yeah, that, because they had the law on the books that anybody connected with a communist right uh, could be indicted and arrested and indicted. And, sent away for 30 years or something. So, uh, yeah, it, it sounded, sounded very much, yeah, it sounded very much like uh, that's what it was all about. Hmm. And, yeah, that was the sort of uh, sort of stuff some of our people did, you know, infiltrating uh, into the left and so forth. Uh, we spent a lot of, lot of time on stuff like that. Uh, early on, I, I counterpicked at CORE up in Chicago over a school issue. Yeah. And CORE did have communists in it, to be sure. And James Farmer was the head of it, I think, at the time. And, you know, uh, we kept up on, you know, on all the people on the left. I was there, I was a half a block away when the first uh, big black uh, riot occurred in Chicago. And it was just an accident that I happened to be there. I was waiting for a girlfriend that worked at a department store to get off work. And I was standing outside smoking a cigarette while I waited for her. She had about 10 minutes to go. And I was looking down at a firehouse where a demonstration was going on, people with picket signs and all. And then suddenly, uh, members in the demonstration started flipping firebombs, you know, Molotov cocktails at the firehouse. And within... Five minutes or less, the entire shopping area I was standing in went up like crazy into chaos. Plate glass windows were being smashed out. People were walking off with racks of clothing, started looting, and, oh, it was chaos. And I grabbed my girlfriend, and we did, we saw no city buses coming or anything, and we just hustled west. It was about three-quarters of a mile to get out of the epicenter of all of this. And we headed west, and about two blocks on, we were handed leaflets by the Spartacist League that said, off the pig, shoot their helicopters down from the sky. All this stuff was prepared. This whole group, the Spartacists, came out of New York. And they all had, like, Brooklyn accents and everything when I spoke with them. And they were handing out leaflets that had been pre-printed to this riot. Huh. And then, of course, the Kerner uh, Commission said, oh, this was a spontaneous riot and everything. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. The group that, that kicked it off was the Chicago Auxiliary of REM, the Revolutionary Action Movement, a black nationalist group that was founded by Robert Williams, uh, a fugitive from North Carolina. And anyway, uh, so, I mean, I was there when this riot, and then, for the next two, three days, the riot went on. If you got up on a high embankment on the railroad tracks or something, you could see the whole section of the west side was on fire, burning down. And uh, I saw it all happen and begin, you know, right there. And uh, it was pretty amazing, you know, to see how quickly this this thing spread. I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, how it there was a little bit of a fracas down at the, the firehouse, and suddenly, everywhere store windows started getting smashed out. People were being attacked on the streets and everything, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable. 
and then it just spread like wildfire. But, uh, so anyway, you know, I've seen a lot of all this stuff, you know, I've been on the ground, you know, where things happened and, and whatnot. That was like a mile away from Klein's uh, sporting goods store, east of Klein's. Right. It's where the, uh, the first big Chicago black riot occurred was. Man. You know. So, yeah, we, we did have people that infiltrated into the left, and uh, like George DeMurley. You can look him, you can Google him. And uh, Sam Melville was the name of the bomber, the name he used. And uh, we had people that got in among the weathermen and all these other groups. So, yeah, I, I, I basically, my, my primary chore when I was in the Minutemen was intelligence. So I went through a lot of stuff, and I would get enormous amounts of uh, news clippings and stuff out of uh, New Orleans. Almost daily, there would be like three or four huge manila envelopes uh, just stuffed with newspaper clippings and various things. I never caught up with them all. There was just so much to go through. And I think that may have been coming from Bannister's office when he hired that one woman to, to clip newspapers for him. I forget what her name was. Uh, Delphine Roberts? Yeah, I believe so. And maybe she was the one stuffing the envelopes and sending them to us. They, sometimes there'd be pamphlets, and uh, but mostly uh, clippings out of the uh, Picayune, the New Orleans Picayune, they, and the New Orleans State's Item. There was two newspapers, uh, neither of which exist anymore, I'm told. For some reason, I guess newspapers have begun to fold up to yeah. uh the cyber world has taken away a lot of that. Nobody buys newspapers much anymore. No. Well, Robert, fascinating life you have led, and, and man, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. I mean, well, it's a pleasure to do so, Rob. Uh, hope to come back again. I may have some other things to uh, deal with up the, the timeline, okay? Hey, absolutely. Hey, is there, I, will uh, indeed, I will indeed send you any books I write on this stuff. Awesome. And maybe that would be a good time to come back, you know, oh, yeah. if you digested what I had to write or whatever. And uh, But I think you're on to something, as well as Mr. Caulfield, you know. Like I say, my only uh, thing on that was the sheer number of people that he implicated in all this. Seems almost overboard uh, in so much as getting away with something like that and having so many people out there knowledgeable of it. Yeah. But anyway, you know, very interesting book. And it was oh, a labor to read, admittedly, yeah. uh, due to its uh, length and all, and detail. But there's quite a bit of good information I got out of this, and quite a bit that I didn't know about before. So uh, it yeah. was well worth the read. Kudos to you so, for okay, finishing that quick. And because uh, yeah. I've had it for about nine months, and I'm still not done yet. <laughs> You haven't finished it yet? Not yet. It's, uh -huh. Yeah, it, it took about four and a half days of, I mean, real reading, eight yeah. hours a day or so. You know, in fact, my vision was a bit almost blurry after finishing it. You know, as you get older, your eyes don't get better. Yeah, what's well, tiny type, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is tiny type. And it's a, a big format book, too. Oh, yeah. So they get more into it. Yeah, but it was well worth reading, you know. Uh, I uh, 
I definitely would uh, recommend it to people. In fact, I did up on Facebook. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. If anybody wants to learn any more about the John Birch Society, the Minutemen, a lot of these extreme yeah. rate guys. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Robert, you hang on the line for me, and I'm going to talk us out here real quick. Okay. Um, people, head over to tlgpodcast.com for more. I'm going to put up some interesting articles that Robert sent me. I'm going to put up uh, some videos from from his band because he's got some really good songs over there you need to check out. And I thank Robert Taylor for joining me today. That's it, everybody. This some bitches in the can. Beam up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. And I see the and the rains that fall are red. Cocky comes a calling as the days grow dark with dread. As the days grow dark with dread. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. 
Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.